People of God in Christ, the passage before us this evening is the second of the seven letters of Revelation. Revelation 2, 8 through 11 is uh, John's record of the letter of Christ to the church in Smyrna. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, the Reformed position on biblical inspiration is not the dictation view. In other words, we do not try to argue that God dictated Scripture word by word to Moses or to the prophets or to the apostles. This is why we see a difference in style of writing and vocabulary of different books written by different writers. We see Paul in Paul's letters. We, 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 uh, we pick up Peter in Peter's letters, uh, John in his writings, and, and so on. But while we don't hold to a dictation view of inspiration, there are certain parts of Scripture that were dictated word by word, it would seem, to the writer. And here is one example, perhaps even the chief example in Scripture. At the beginning of each letter, we hear Christ himself commanding John to write. To begin the first letter, he, we read the words to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And to begin the second letter, we read, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, and so on. So the point is not to elevate uh, this portion of Scripture above others. Other parts of Scripture are, uh, are not dictated to the human writer, and yet they are no less the Word of God than these seven letters. But it really ought to give us pause uh, to note that these seven letters are literally dictated by Christ through John to the various churches. And it reminds us of several things. First, that Christ is actively ruling over his church, uh, not from some faraway royal city and remote throne. Christ is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Christ is with his people. He is actively ruling over his people. Second, it reminds us that uh, all we do is done in his presence, in the very face of Christ. His eyes are upon us. His heart is filled with love for us. And we need to be conscious of doing everything. As, uh, as Colossians 3.17 says, In word or deed, in the name, doing everything in the name of, Jesus, of, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we take up the second letter uh, this evening. And as we do so, let's, let's hear it in this sense, that this is a letter written to us as well. Imagine if I, if I stood here this evening and said, uh, a letter has arrived this week, and, and it's from none other than from Christ himself. Well, guess what? That, uh, that should actually be our perspective on really the whole of God's word, but specifically this evening on this second letter. And the first thing to consider this evening uh, as a first point is the credentials of Christ. And here is one of the parallel features between each of the seven letters. Uh, each letter begins with the words, To the angel of the church, write, 
But each letter also begins with a reference back to the vision of Christ recorded in verses 12 through 17 of the previous of, of the first chapter. So, so the first letter refers to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which is what we heard first in Revelation 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and turning and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And now the second letter refers to the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, which is what we hear in Revelation 1.17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one I died, and behold, I am alive forever." So what we are given to see at the start of of this first vision, what we uh, might call the credentials of Christ. And and at the start of each letter, a a certain one of those credentials uh, is, is stated and highlighted to go along with the particular message of that letter. So to go along with the letter or, or with the call of Christ to be faithful unto death and to, uh, and to match the promise of Christ, and I will give you the crown of life. So we hear this particular credential of Christ, that he is the first and the last who died and came to life. Here we are reminded that the authority and the promises of Christ are well-grounded and well-founded. Christ is our King, but not because we've elected Him to that position, not because we've set Him up as our King, but because, as Philippians 3, 8 and 9 says, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that, therefore, God has highly exalted Him and, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Simply put, these words of Christ, dictated by Christ through the Apostle John, are no empty words. They are not just the, uh, the stirring, rah-rah words of a coach hoping to stir up his team. And this is not just the oratory uh, of some inspirational speak- uh, speaker. These are the words of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. These are the words of one who is infinitely qualified to say them and to mean them. Indeed, this Christ is the one who hears, who bears the credentials, even to say, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Consider with me that uh, even the greatest of military generals cannot say these words. At best, even the greatest of generals can only say, fight for me, be true to this cause, and you will have your country's eternal gratitude. And even then, he has to exaggerate, uh, because having your name etched on on a plaque or a wall does not enter into eternity. But here's the best that Christ can say to us in the midst of the battle of the Christian life. He says, be faithful, even be faithful unto death. And he can even add this, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And the point we are making most explicitly here is that Christ has the credentials to issue issue this call. 
attached to this promise because he is the one who is the first and the last. He is the one who himself has died and yet has come to life. We have such a low view of Christ in our day. And we can get away with it because we are not facing the kind of persecution that the church has suffered in most every other century in her history. Praise God for the day we live in. Let us give thanks to God for the freedoms we enjoy this in this land. But, but here's the price we pay. We don't need, so we think, an exalted Christ. We don't need a credentialed Christ. We take His promises for granted without stopping to think about the, the grandeur and the, and the majesty of what He has promised us. And so we are, we are quite satisfied, like so many evangelicals, with Jesus in the manger, or like our Roman Catholic friends, with Jesus held in suspended animation on the cross. Neither image is incorrect. When Jesus was born, he was laid in a manger. When he grew up, he hung upon a cross, making his once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of his people. But that's not how the story ends. And even a resurrected Christ is not the final image. As Christ now reigns eternal at the right hand of the Father, as Christ now bears all authority in heaven and on earth, He reigns with full credentials. He reigns as the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. He reigns as the one who has authority to give us the crown of life. So once again, we might read the description that John gives of his vision of Christ. The one with the long robe and the golden sash, the one with eyes like a flame of fire, sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and his face shining like the sun in full strength. We might read that description and we might say, I think I'll keep my baby in the manger image of Jesus. Or uh, my Jesus on the shores of Galilee image. Because who wants an image of Christ that makes us tremble? One that conveys such power and authority that that we cringe to see it. The one who wants it, you see, is the one who needs it. The one who wants it is the one who is facing the deadly and powerful forces of evil in this world. The one who wants it is the one who needs a Christ who is more terrible and more powerful than death itself. Brothers and sisters, we have just such a Christ, one who died and came to life, one who can give us the crown of life in return for our death. And even if we think we can do without this image of Christ, let us at least remember it. Remember that it's here in the book of Revelation because we may need it. We very well may need it even one of these days very soon. And that brings us to a second point, namely the consent of Christ. The next verse, verse 9, makes it clear again that Christ is dwelling with his church. He is fully aware of the state and the experience of the church. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the church in Smyrna was apparently already suffering. But Christ has this to say further to them in verse 10. Do not fear, 
what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And we're calling this the consent of Christ because by all means we want to avoid the thought that Christ is simply warning them. It's not at all the case that Christ is simply warning them, simply preparing them for something that he can't otherwise keep from happening. When the tornado siren sounds, the message is, get to the basement, get yourself out of harm's way. There's a tornado coming, and there's nothing you or anyone can do about it, so take cover and wait for the storm to pass. But that is not what Christ is doing here. This is not just a warning from Christ, and this is how we can tell. First, Christ refers to this time of suffering as a test. In verse 10, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And the thing to remember whenever we hear of the church being tested by God is the omniscience of God. In other words, when God tests his people, when we sense that he is testing us, the point is not that God is trying to figure out for himself what we are made of. He already knows that. He knows that we are weak. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, says Psalm 103, verse 14. He knows that we are not capable of faith in the first place. He's the one who gives and sustains faith within us. So what's the point of God testing his people? It's not for God to learn something about us. But then what is the point? The point is for us to learn for us to learn about our own weakness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And again, uh, several verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, Paul writes, "For For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So here's a, hopefully not too clever, but here's a clever way to remember. God's tests are to manifest. God manifests His power as He tests His people. So that's the first way we can tell that this suffering would come by way of Christ's consent and not simply upon his warning. Uh, The second way is because according to the word of Christ, the suffering of the church in Smyrna would last for a designated period of time. Again, in verse 10, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Point is not necessarily a literal 10 days, but a measured, determined period of time. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. So this is far more than a warning. Christ is not just sounding an alarm. He is consenting to this time of tribulation for the sake of his own purposes and for his glory. And and here's where we are reminded, and here's where it becomes all the more clear, that the call of Christ is, 
we heard from Matthew 10, the call of Christ is to, to deny ourselves and to, and to take up our cross and follow him. Again, in a day of peace and safety, it's easy to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible is true. I, I, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. And that's, that's all good. And it's exactly as it should be. There's nothing wrong with that confession of faith. It's just that Jesus himself made it clear that those who believe in him who believe that he died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the dead, that they would be those who would suffer for that faith. And so it needs to mean an awful lot to us that Christ is our Savior from sin because it won't always be easy to be a Christian and, and the temptation will come in one form or another to turn back to trade our faith in for ease and comfort, for safety and from uh, a pass from the world around us. Young people in particular are, uh, are just starting out in life and, and perhaps just taking up faith in Christ. And, and it's not that being a Christian means you uh, shouldn't, as a young person, be thinking about careers and getting married, doing things and going places in your life. It's a, it's, it's a good creation in which we live and we're called to be here and to live here. But young or old, it will soon become evident whether you have just sort of tacked Christ on to your life or whether Christ is your life. As a Christian, it's not just about choosing a career, but about answering the call of Christ for what he would have us do with our lives. As a Christian, it's not just about getting married, but again, answering the call of Christ for whether he is calling a person to be married and who he would have that person marry and why. As a Christian, life is not just about doing things and going places, but about serving Christ. And in the end, someday, it may not only be about living for Christ, it may be about dying for Christ. Are we ready for that? Surely none of us is really fully ready for that, but we can begin to get ready. And we can trust that Christ will make us ready and will not call us to lay down our life for him until we are ready. And so we come to the last and final point, uh, the last point, the call of Christ. And, and there are really two explicit calls or commands in this letter. The first comes in uh, or, or at the start of verse 10, and it's the call, do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's a command. That's a call. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. We hear the same call of Christ in the Gospels, especially as we've read in Matthew 10. And the context is exactly the same as here. In Matthew 10, 16 to 24, Jesus is predicting, prophesying that, uh, that persecution will come for his disciples. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But in verse 26, he said, so have no fear of them. And in verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And again in verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And even before the Gospels, in the Hebrew Scriptures, 
we hear the same command given over and over to Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, for example, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. The thing to remember whenever we hear this call in Scripture is is that the call is not that we mustn't feel afraid. How could we ever hope to do that? Never to feel afraid. So even when Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not be anxious, the point is not that we are prohibited from feeling anxious. The point, rather, is that we must not let fear rule us. We must not let anxiety distract and keep us from all the other things we are called to do as Christians. It's not that we should hope never to feel afraid in our lives. But what do we do with that fear? That's the, that's the issue. Well, first of all, we prepare for it, and we prepare for it by remembering the credentials of Christ. When we find ourselves afraid of what the world might do to us, we remember that Christ has overcome the world. And if we come to the point of looking death in the face, we remember that Christ has overcome death and the grave. He is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. And He is on our side. He is walking among the seven golden lampstands, which is to say He dwells with us and He rules over us. And nothing happens to us. No suffering is given to us except by His consent and according to His purposes. So there's a sense in which the second call is really the same as the first. At least the second is closely connected to the first. The first, again, is do not fear what you are about to suffer. And the second call is be faithful unto death. And We need to hear and answer the same call in our day. But why, someone might say, Why should we hear the call to be faithful unto death when we're not living in that kind of a day? Or at least not in such a place as we prayed about earlier, where there is a greater sense of danger uh, for being a Christian. And the answer is that the call to be faithful unto death must always be the, the high standard of our lives, so that, the, so that this call is really the call to make every other lesser sacrifice as well. Think about it this way, that that if we are called to be faithful even unto death, even unto laying down our lives for Christ, then how can we withhold any lesser sacrifice for Christ? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. It's even as Hebrews 12, verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So we need to start early in life, as early as possible, thinking about how we are using our time and our possessions. Are there, are there things in your life, things you're watching on television or on the computer, things that, you're, that you allow to, uh, to fit in, things that are, that are popular, but, but things that, that uh, a Christian shouldn't be involved in? And, and if we would say, yes, there are, there are such things in my life, then, then there is a sacrifice to make. 
And if Christ calls you to be faithful even unto death, and surely we cannot say, but, but I don't want to give it up. And surely we cannot say, but that's too much to ask of me. And neither can we say, uh, but that will make me unpopular with the world. Yes, it very well might. But the call of Christ is to be faithful even unto death. And if we think that in some future day we will be willing to lay down our lives for Christ, then what about today? Why won't we make the lesser sacrifices even now until then? Too often I think we want to say, but that's too much to ask of me. Surely Christ doesn't expect that of me. But why not? When his call is to be faithful even unto death. And this applies to our chosen forms of entertainment, to how we're using the Lord's Day, to how we're using money, um, and the call to bring the tithe into the house of the Lord. It, it applies to being willing to forgive others. As hard as it might be to say, I'm sorry, or to say, I forgive you, it's not too much. It's not. It's not too much to ask. And it's not too much to do because Christ himself laid down his life for us on the cross and he calls us to be faithful unto death. So what we can't do, what we mustn't do, is to hear the teaching of this passage of Scripture and say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tuck it away until the day when persecution comes. Persecution may come this week, perhaps uh, in some lesser form of severity, perhaps um, uh, to some lesser degree, but persecution may come this week as we are faithful. Remember that faithfulness itself will bring persecution. And, and despite our suffering, we are called to be faithful, faithful even unto death. And, and the call to be faithful even unto death is the call to make every lesser sacrifice willingly. Perhaps not easily, but willingly for the sake of Christ. And let's finish by asking again, why, why would we ever do this? Why forego the pleasures of sin. Why not take the broad and easy way in life? Because the pleasures of sin are passing while Christ reigns eternal. Because the broad and easy way leads to destruction, while the narrow and hard way leads to an eternal reward. We must be faithful even unto death. Because Christ was faithful even unto death for us, even suffering the wrath and judgment of God for our sin. And having risen again from the dead, His promise, His promise to us, is that He will give us the crown of life. His promise is that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And He has the credentials to make such promises. That's what we need to see. His words are the words of the first and the last. He is the one who died and came to life. He knows what we are facing. He even faced it himself. And his call is that we must not fear what we are about to suffer. His call is to be faithful even unto death. Amen. Let us pray.
We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your credentials. We thank you for the revelation given to us through your uh, appearance to John in a vision. We thank you for that image of you with all power and authority, reigning on high, reigning over all the world, unperturbed by your enemies. And we thank you that you are for us. So help us to hear your call to be willing to suffer as Christians and help us to be willing on the basis of your assurance that we need not be afraid exactly because of your credentials, exactly because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us, yes, to remember you as the baby in the manger. Help us to remember you, yes, as Jesus walking with his disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But help us to remember this image as well, that you now reign in unapproachable light. You are our God. You have all power. And we can trust you, even when you consent to our suffering of persecution in this life. Help us to trust you, knowing who you are. In your name, Lord Jesus, do we pray. Amen.